Hola, so good morning. Uh, first of all, who is uh, Birgit's buddy? You are. Yeah, how is she doing today? Okay, please check right after this, okay? Because she's, as you know, she's, she's experienced quite a, pain, a bit of pain. Uh, so, yeah, I heard her groan, groaning this morning again also. So, yeah. yeah, this morning from 4 o'clock, she wasn't. Yeah. Thanks for checking. Thanks for checking. Good. And then an announcement I keep on meaning to have made and I haven't yet. And that is the last one-on-one interview, in, one-on-one interviews or meetings will take place a week from tomorrow and during the last and then everybody will have the same number I kind of want to be even there but during the last week that is starting from a week from Monday uh, then I'll extend uh, the morning sessions by another half hour because then we'll definitely be in transition we'll have two days of silence Monday Tuesday uh, our final days of silence but for Monday Tuesday Wednesday Thursday then we'll have a one-hour session in the morning and that'll be just for having a bit more time for discussion and especially discussion about transition because we'll be definitely in the landing mode at that time. And then, as I think you know, uh, then Wednesday, Wednesday and Thursday will be talk days. So I, I expect to hear a lot of chatter uh, over lunch and all the meals and so forth. And then we'll formally wrap up Thursday night and then Friday to the winds. So this morning, we return to the meditative cultivation of compassion. Once again, I'd like to be focusing on that bandwidth of suffering, of blatant suffering, and especially focus on mental suffering. I've noticed that a few of you now and again have experienced some mental suffering while you've been here. (laughs) It took a little while, but I chuckled. You can start laughing now. (laughs) Um, And there it is. And it's especially helpful when mental suffering arises in a situation like this, when there's so little to be unhappy about, at least for the while. I mean, you can always think about past unhappinesses and you can conjure up all kinds of unhappinesses for the future. Uh, but frankly, I think there's really not a whole lot to be unhappy about for these eight weeks here, I think. That's my impression. In other words, what we're encountering here is authentic unhappiness. Uh, <laughs> you remember what that is? The one that comes from within, what you bring to the world rather than what you get from it, <laughs> right? And so it's quite unpleasant. You might have noticed that. And it's interesting to see how the responses are to this are. One person mentioned, quite a disassembly, I've heard this many times, it's like there's another mind. I've got my mind, the good mind. And I want to meditate. I want to be good. I want to have long sessions and have them be very, very good. And I want to be totally delighted about the meditation and be very happy with myself. But there's the bad mind. And the bad mind doesn't like to meditate. <laughs> and it always feels grumpy. And it's always gnarly. It's not very nice. So have got good mind, bad mind. I think if you find that bad mind, you should get out a, a weapon of mass destruction and just, just blow it away. You know? Or one person mentioned that having practiced it for quite some time, then the hell realms are coming up again. Mm. And other people have mentioned various types of apparitions. Appearances coming up. And there is a solution. There's a way out. One is, of course, just to release them, like in mindfulness of breathing. Whatever's coming up, whatever's coming up in the mind, 
saying, I'm busy. But that's cinema number one. All the stuff coming up in the mind, all the emotions, the thoughts, the memories, desires, everything, all that's in cinema number one. That's in, out of six, six cinemas, we all live in a cineplex of six cinemas, that's all in the cinema of the mind. But when you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, you're really not attending to that, except just to note you know, whether there's perturbation and, the and then remedy it. But you're really focusing single-pointedly with unification of attention on the cinema of tactile experience, which is an entirely different one. And tactile experience, that cinema, that domain of experience, as I think you've noticed by now, is non-conceptual. You certainly have feelings arising there, and you certainly have correlates, somatic correlates of emotion. They certainly arise there. But talk, thoughts, I don't think so. They're not on earth, water, fire, air. They're not in the sensations of the breath. They're not in the space element of the body. They're not there. And so when you're practicing mindfulness of breathing, you just basically say, you know, whatever's happening in the mind, I'm just not interested right now. Whether you're happy, sad, whether you got two minds in there, three minds in there, whether you got hell realms in there, whatever, keep it to yourself. Because I'm not, I'm not paying entrance for that. I'm not paying admission. I paid admission to the somatic field, and I'm hanging out there single-pointedly. Right? And then likewise, in awareness of awareness, well, you're just kind of taking a laser and just punching, you know, just blazing right through the screen of the mind. If we just keep, keep with the cineplex metaphor, is there's, a, there's okay, now you, now you are in, definitely, you're, you're not attending. In awareness of awareness, you're not attending to any of the five sensory fields, you know that. So what cinema have you gone into? Gone into the cinema of the mind. Well, that's where all the goblins are. The other mind is, the hell realms and all the apparitions and so forth. But now instead of watching the movie, you're just taking out your nifty little laser and just burning a hole through the screen. Right? You don't care what's on the screen. <laughs> Melted away into just the sheer luminosity of awareness, and that's all you're interested in. So whatever it's playing, whether it's Charlie Chaplin, whether it's Godzilla, whatever it is, you're just burning right through it. You know, melted Charlie Chaplin, incinerated Godzilla, because you're just going right through it. But now that one that many of you find, a number of you find you're very drawn to it, some find irritating, and other times find very troubling, is settling the mind into natural state. And that's where we are fu fully facing whatever's arising there in the domain of the mind. We are now really attending to the movie in cinema number six, let's say, of consciousness. There's a way out, and this relates to compassion. Compassion for ourselves, compassion for all beings. And that is whatever is arising in that cinema of the mind. It's empty appearances. It's empty appearances. They have no more substance in the waking state than they do when you're dreaming. It's the same stuff. It's the same material. Right? No more. I'm just talking about space of the mind. If somebody comes in and slaps you on the knee, there's molecules in their knee, in, their, in your knee, and there's molecules in the hand. That's different. That's different. But no, this space of the mind, it doesn't have any molecules. Whether you're dreaming or whether you're settling the mind, it's natural state. Either way, there's nothing real there from its own side. So if you really ascertain that, this is where we're really going right on the cusp between shamati vipassana. We are now, hey, let's have some insight here. Whatever's arising, Memories of the past, emotions pertaining to the past, anxieties about the future, conjure, uh, conjuring tricks in the present moment, and boredom, and all the other stuff. It's empty. It's just, they're just appearances. They have no, they have no substance. They have no molecules. They have no power. 
If you just isolate them, say, okay, how about you on your own? How much power do you got? The answer is zero. These things do not of their own accord have the ability, the power to come out and grip you and shake you like a terrier shakes a rat. It seems like they do. But it takes two to tango. It's got to have two hands there. If you've got a Teflon hand, if you've got a, if you've got a hand just drenched in grease and the thoughts try to come, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a hard time, I'm going to yank you around, I'm going to give you a hell realm. You got a hand of grease. They just got, they can't, they can't latch on unless you latch back. Now I know it's not voluntary. We don't decide, oh, I think I'm going to make myself miserable. Why don't I now ad identify with and grasp onto all the thoughts, images, and so forth? Of course, it's not voluntary. But it's also not beyond our control. Here's one thing, finally, I'm going to say this, we really have this, is in the realm of our control in a world where almost nothing is. Not that we can control what comes in the mind. No, that just pretty much happens to a large extent. But how do we respond to it? Do we grasp onto it or not? Do we reify it or not? Because there's nothing there from its own side. Shantideva makes the same point in, oh, I think it's the introspection chapter, maybe the, probably, or maybe the one in conscientiousness, one of the two. If you don't identify with them, they have no power, these mental afflictions. They're just orphaned. They're just hanging out there in space. They're little like little dead shells, dead, dead skin, mere apparitions. And until you realize that, you will be tormented by your mind. And you will feel, in settling the mind and other practices, that you're just going around in a circle. You have some really good days. It goes, 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 goes. Oh, crap. And then the whole bottom falls out of it, and you're in the hell realms, and you feel you're getting nowhere. You... And if you have enough guts and courage and, and what, perseverance, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get back in the saddle, I'll try it again. And you have some better days and better days. And oh, it's going, oh, crap. And you'll be in that cycle indefinitely. That will be at least one life. No, it's much, actually much longer than that. It's much worse than that. Until you finally pick up the key. And that is, there are no hell realms there. There are apparitions there. They're empty. They're empty appearances. And when you sustain that, you don't just know it. It's easy to know it, but it's much easier to forget it and then have samadhi in forgetting it. Right? So get the knowing and then remember the knowing, and that's mindfulness, where you're sustaining an insight and it's carrying you all the way through your 24-minute session, your one-hour, your two-hour, three-hour session. It's all the way through. Whatever's coming up here, you got no power over me. You got no power over me. And you don't even have the intention to have power over me. You're not even a sentient being. I could destroy you and there's no, there's no negative karma. I could obliterate you, annihilate you. There's no negative karma. Because you're not even a sentient being. I am a sentient being. You're not a sentient being. So piss off. Or just evaporate. Or do your own thing. But you're not getting, getting your, your, your hooks in me any longer. You know, kind of rise up in rebellion. This mind has bullied you for too long. Right. Maybe enough is enough. And we keep on blaming it, and yet we're the one that keeps on grasping, and that's what makes us vulnerable. So this becomes very clear. When all the apparitions have finally tested you, you can think of even the worst ones as being the blessings of the Buddha. Now let's bring in some pure vision. 
And I'm not talking about airy-fairy and sugar-coated and rose-tinted glasses. But how are you going to realize their empty nature unless they keep on arising in such a fashion that arouses your old habitual tendency to grasp on, to reify, and therefore be, therefore be troubled by whatever these apparitions are of the mind? If they were all just pleasant, you'd never get over it. Just like it said in the Deva realms, they never develop renunciation. What's to renounce? It's nice. You know, everybody beautiful until the flowers start fading a little bit. That's a bummer. But until then, the food is good, the sex is good, everything's really cool. Samsara is nice. You're reifying everything, reifying yourself, grasping onto everything. It's good, it's good, it's good. And then you die, learning nothing. So we know that also. I remember Geshe-Ngam again, one of my first teachers, he said, if you look at the history of great yogis in Tibet, go back to India if you like, the great ones who really made tremendous accomplishment, I mean, choose your words, realization, breaking through, but really having profound realization and liberation, awakening. He said, you'll not find one of them that had an easy life. Not one that just kind of glided, oh, merrily, 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 merrily. Dharma's such a dream, you know, and I had such a good time, and it was just really swell all the, and now I'm awake. Ah. You won't find one, not even one. They're not all, you know, not all as tortured as Milarepa was, but oh man, all of them, tough. And that's because if you don't have the toughness, then you don't have the, the motivation to break through and realize what's really going on. The easiest way to have a lucid dream, this goes back to Tsongkhapa, 15th century. The easy way, for normal people with no training, what's the easiest way to break into lucidity, to recognize the dream as a dream, to have a really bad one? When you're enjoying the dream, why do you want to become lucid? Just dig it, you know. Whereas when you have a nightmare, and it's so awful, it's just so awful, terrifying, painful, miserable, whatever it may be, then there may rise this glimmering, oh, this has got to be a dream. Oh, it is a dream. Good, I'm out of here. And then you wake up. So you're lucid for a very short time, just long enough to hit the ejector button, and you're out of the dream. Rather than staying there and being lucid and really understanding the dream, we just go for the knee-jerk reaction, hit the ejector button, and we're out of the dream. We wake up, oh, good, that's over. You know? But hardly got any benefit from that insight at all. So compassion, in a way, it's so close, this freedom from blatant mental suffering. It's so close. We don't need years and years and years and years of therapy. We don't need years and years and years of Dharma practice or lifetimes of Dharma practice. It's so close. Just stop what you've already been doing. You don't have to do more, do less. Stop grasping on. See the empty appearance as empty appearance. And now the compliment to that is let your awareness hold its own ground. This is what the Buddha did. I mean, now we just go macrocosmic, right? The night of his enlightenment. Right? When he was not going to sit, he was not going to stand up and move until he'd achieved the awakening that he was seeking. What happened to him? All the hordes of Madas assaulted him. Remember? All of them. They came from all different directions. Who knows how they appeared to him? But it could have looked, if we looked at that from a psychoanalytic perspective, he's having a massive psychotic breakdown here. He's surrounded by demons and devils, and they're where, you know, wielding battle axes and spears and daggers and nuclear weapons and who knows what. And they're coming in from all sides to annihilate this one guy. And what did he do? Get out his AK-47 and, you know, nope. He just recognized them for what they were. 
And that was enough. That was enough. He just recognized Mara's as Mara's. Hey, does that sound familiar or what? He recognized Mara's as Mara's. And in that recognition, they were powerless. And as long as we apprehend them as anything else, then we get powerless. But it's so bizarre because we're empowering the powerless and disempowering the one agent here that actually has the potential to have some control. So, for mental suffering, for blatant mental suffering, shamatha is a key. It really is. So lo and behold. Because when you see through all those apparitions, then your mind is allowed to melt, 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 dissolve into a substrate consciousness. And from that point on, in the substrate consciousness in meditation, from access to the first jhana, second, third, fourth, into the formless realms, there's no mental suffering at all. Zero. Nada. Right? At all. As long as you're in meditative equipoise, you are in like a wheel, you're within a wheel of sharp weapons. No, nothing can get to you. There's no mental suffering at all. Come off the cushion, engage, then you can, you can. But then all you have to do is go back in again, right? So there's that, but now let's just take it one step further. Because there's such a natural progression here. It's so marvelous. It really is marvelous. I just want to start prostrating to it. And that is dream yoga. Dream yoga, lucid dreaming. Get really lucid and stay lucid. Right? In other words, get the insight and sustain it with mindfulness. Don't just have a little glimpse and then wake up or just fall back into torpor. Become lucid in the dream. Recognize the dream as the dream. Sustain that with growing clarity, relaxation, stability, clarity. And now number one, can anything there in the dream, now that you're really quite vividly and in a sustained fashion, you are lucid, recognizing dream as dream. Can anything there in the dream that happens to you, the people, the environment, the situation, can anything there make you unhappy? No, how, how could it? It's like watching a bad movie. You know, but can it really make you unhappy? No, you can just be, just watch it. I mean, okay, that's, that's what's happening in the cinema now, whatever. But no, if insofar as you are really recognizing dream events as dream events, whatever they are, they can't make you unhappy. They have no power at all, because you recognize they, ha they have not even any existence from their own side. They're not even there. This is like pointing to a reflection in a mirror and say, oh, you make me so unhappy. That's, that's crazy. You know, that really is crazy. And that's the problem of not being lucid, is you are crazy. You're fundamentally deluded about the nature of reality. So there in the, in the lucid dream, though, it's just kind of a step beyond kind of lucidity in settling the mind in its natural state, recognizing mental events as mental events. Because now in the dream, you're totally... You're totally, how do you say, you're present in the dream. You actually have a body in the dream, right? So now, if you're very lucid, with very clear, incisive insight into the emptiness of inherent nature of everything in the dream, and that means your own body, and your own present, who you are in the dream, you're a little caricature, you're a little, you're a little novel character, you're, you're a, fiction, a fictitious character, that little person in the dream, and you're going to be dead soon anyway, a matter of minutes. You know, it's a little, a little short story. You know that, though. Therefore, you're not identifying with it. This is just, a, as soon as the dream's over, you're gone, right? And so in that context, where now you've got this fully, how do you say, surround sound, 3D, HD, cinema of mind, called dreamscape, all of it coming out of your substrate. Not only are you free of mental suffering, but really there's no reason whatsoever for you to experience physical suffering. Physical, that is, within the dream, your body in the dream. After all, it's made, of, it's made of the stuff that dreams are made of. It's mind-made. And since you're clear, 
then now you're like an Arya Bodhisattva. You're like an Arya Bodhisattva, a Bodhisattva who has direct realization of emptiness. And that is to sit an Arya Bodhisattva in the waking state can cut off his limbs as if he's giving away vegetables. It's just easy. Because he just he actually apprehends, he or she apprehends in the waking state that this is a dream from the Arya Bodhisattva's perspective. You grasp onto nothing, you seeing everything as really fundamentally no more substantial than a dream. That goes your own body, that molecules too are not inherently existent. The atoms that constitute your body, they're not inherently existent either, right? And so it, thus it is said, once you're an Arya Bodhisattva, from this point on, if somebody asks for a limb, you know, legs, once your body, your heart, your liver, whatever, oh, why not give it away? There's no pain, there's no suffering. Just give it away. So now you're even free of physical suffering. Now you get the sneak preview in the dream, lucid dream, where you can give away your liver and your tongue and your, your, tongue and your heart and your brains and so forth. Give, give them a head, you know. Or somebody says, lend me your ears, you can give them both of them, you know. And there's just no pain. I mean, why should there be? It's just, it's just apparitions, and you're the magician. You're a lucid dreamer. You can do what you like there. So as you are free of both mental and physical blatant suffering, insofar as you're lucid, if now we take it a step further. If you gain realization of emptiness, like that of an Arya Bodhisattva, direct realization, then not only are you free of mental suffering, you're free of physical suffering as well. That is, you're not anesthetized. It just arises in space with no owner. And so you chop off limbs and so forth and so on. And you feel, oh, there's a little pain that arose that has no owner, so it has nothing to glom onto, since I'm not glomming onto it. And so there you are, you're free. Even before being a Buddha, before being an Arhat, you're free. So to be free of mental suffering, really shouldn't that be, be that big a deal? Right? And it's to see the empty appearances of whatever rises in the mind, recognize the mental events as mental events, totally insubstantial, having no existence from their own side, by their own nature, and therefore they have no power. Right? Realize that. And then with mindfulness, and this is why we keep on coming back, this is all about mindfulness, sustaining that continuity of coherent, focused attention. With that mindfulness, let your awareness hold its own ground without grasping, without distraction or grasping. And then you're free. Free from blatant suffering. The other dimensions that will need more in-depth work. But for the time being, you're free of blatant suffering. And that, as they say in Tibetan, that gives you a sigh of relief. Like, that's all there was to it. I thought this was going to be really complicated. That's all, oh, why didn't you tell me that earlier? Why did you wait now until the seventh week? Why couldn't you have said that and saved me all the trouble over the first six weeks? Boy, you're a bad teacher. Bad, bad, bad teacher. It's very true. Scoundrel of a teacher. I saved the best till last. Let's meditate.
Hello. Oh yeah. As we approach the end of the retreat, I want to emphasize once again that when you're out, you'll probably find at least some deterioration of your shamatha skills. But there's very good news there, by the way. Actually, and we've seen this. This is not some pitch or some kind of hopeful belief. Um, that even if you go from here into quite a chaotic environment, just many, many demands, things, a lot of things piling up while you've been here, and you find, oh, you're really losing your shamatha. What we found now, since the shamatha project five years ago, is that even if you felt, oh man, you know, like three, year, three weeks after you leave here, where's it gone? I think I'm right back exactly where I was before the Phuket retreat. And when you look manifestly, you know, how is your relaxation stability and vividness? You may, you may have very good grounds for drawing that conclusion. Hey, my mind is as scattered as, as it was, ever was. So then what was the point of that eight weeks? Nice vacation, although it could have been a lot nicer. <laughs> I mean, how many beaches have we not, have we not checked out here, you know? Um, but the really good news there in this regard is that we found now repeatedly that when people, even, how, even if the minds become very, very scattered, just because of the environment and all of that, that if they take off a weekend, or they go off for a week, or, or longer, what turns out to be the case is those skills are there. Those skills are there, and you can retrieve them quite quickly. A very close analogy. I used to be fluent, quite fluent. I mean, not as fluent as a German, but quite fluent. And now the German speakers know that's no longer true, okay? Not even close. But I have found that when I go to any German-speaking country, that it comes back really, really quickly, right? And so it's a it's very, very strong analogy, very, very strong analogy, that, oh, this is so familiar. Oh, yeah, 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 I remember, I remember, I remember. And then there you are, you know, getting fluent. So that's for the shamatha part. But for the four measurables, I just want to emphasize this again. Insofar as you develop that familiarity, that experience, that confidence, these will be four of your best friends. When you're out there in the midst of the most gnarly situations, difficult situations, challenging, dealing with very unpleasant people and so forth, you will not find on this planet four better friends than the four measurables. Even your lama, probably not with you. You know, you might have a marvelous lama. I have a marvelous lama, but I don't get to spend that much time with him, right? And spiritual friends, well, you may not always be with your spiritual friends. I mean, good dharma buddies, well, they can't hang out with you all the time, but the four measurables can always be with you. So, good reason to cultivate. Now, some of you have commented, oh, but I find it so difficult. You know, I, I, I try to do in these discursive meditations. I don't really have the hang of it. They don't simply have a whole lot of juice to them, not much experience, and I'm really kind of not a compassionate kind of guy or very affectionate kind of guy, and I just don't connect with them all that much. And I just don't have much ability for discursive meditation. I beg to differ. I believe you're wrong. I think all of you are very capable extremely, I would say, expert at discursive meditation. Before you ever came here, you're expert. Let me tell you the script for the meditations that I'll bet you you're very, very good at. You ready for the script? Okay. In the future, why couldn't I suffer? Why couldn't I find the suffering and the causes of suffering? May I find suffering and the causes of suffering? I shall make it so 
and may all the ruminations of the world bless me that I may be so enabled. You're very good at it. You're very good at it. Imagining a really awful future and then giving all your energy to it. And even before it happens, you already get to suffer. You know, just in anticipation. I'm sure it's going to turn out bad. Good, I already feel bad. Emaho. Wishes fulfilled. Why have you been doing that? I, I, I didn't, I, the only part I didn't understand is, why are you doing that? Isn't that kind of a bad habit? But you see the, the abilities, the intelligence, the imagination, the visualization, the arousal of aspirations that you're already so good at, making you miserable, you can now just take that same energy and turn it around to, in the future, why couldn't I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering? May I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. I shall make it so. And may all the forces of light, you know, however you envision that, God, angels, Buddhas, Yidams, Gurus, spiritual friends, whatever you like, power of virtue, bless me that I may be so enabled. If you can do one, you can do the other. Because they're, they're drawing on exactly the same skill set. So this is part of the splendor, I must say, of Buddhist psychology. That they, in Buddhist psychology, classic, you know, ordinary Buddhist psychology, they identify a number of mental factors that are like guns for hire. They can either be hired to protect someone who is of great value, a very precious person, and they're there not to do any harm, but just to protect, but they really know how to shoot their weapons. But the same person, if he's just a hired gun, may be willing to just assassinate anybody for the right price. So it's just a hired gun. They'll go either way. Just pay them the right price, and they'll do whatever you ask. Right? There are mental factors just like that that can be your absolute best friend and your absolute worst enemy. They're hired guns. And it just depends on what mental factors they're, they're linked up with. So I'll give you one of them, intelligence. Intelligence is behind the creation of mass, ma weapons of mass destruction, behind the most ingenious, nefarious terrorist plots. It's behind all of the justification for racism and sexism and ethnic cleansing and child abuse. A lot of intelligence goes in there. A lot of intelligence, right? Really smart. The, what's that guy's name? It's so easy. Il Madoff, because he made off with everybody's money. Really smart guy. I mean, he must have been really, really smart, because he tricked so many really, really smart people. He must have been smarter than a lot of other really smart people. And what did he do with his intelligence? Wound up in jail himself after creating so much misery for other people. And that's what he got from his intelligence. He's probably more intelligent than most of us in this room, if not all of us. And yet he's in jail having made misery for, I think, tens of thousands of people. That's no small accomplishment. Intelligence gone bad. Imagination. Imagination. Creativity. Great. You want to develop biological weapons? You want to develop new methods to torture people? You want to come up with new types of agriculture? or ways of nurturing agriculture, organic, really wholesome, that can help many millions of people. There it is, imagination. Imagination, creativity. It can serve the devil, it can serve the God. You know, there it is. And mindfulness is the same. People can be very focused. I, I'll bet you those terrorists up in the hills of Afghanistan and so forth, I bet they, I bet they have very good mindfulness. You have to be really sustained. It takes a lot of, much, a lot of strength to sustain that type of intention be willing to undergo all those sacrifices and so forth. They have to be very focused. Terrorist samadhi, you know, terrorist mindfulness. 
really focused. The sniper that remains for hours and hours and hours, really mindful, waiting for the head to come up and then blowing the head like a, like a watermelon. That took a lot of mindfulness, a lot of concentration. There's another one, concentration. It's a hired gun. Goes for the sniper, goes for the video game player, goes for the person who's developing bodhicitta. So really our great challenge here is to take the hired guns. Generosity is generosity. Wisdom is wisdom. Malice is malice. Some of, some of those are not hired guns. Some are by nature virtuous, some are by nature non-virtuous. But what we really have, and of course we can cultivate one and try to attend the, the other, but those hired guns, those hired guns, those guns for hire, that's, we really want to get them on our side. Hire them well, right? So hire them well in the cultivation of the four immeasurables and overcome why couldn't I suffer and have a cause of suffering, bad habit. Because you're letting your hired guns serve the dark side, the dark side for yourself, misery. Why should we do that? Other people, other people give us enough suffering. Why should we help them out, give more suffering to ourselves? So, so I really mean it when I say, enjoy your day. <laughs>